I want to start by uh, thanking uh, you guys for praying for me. Uh, there is, uh, to me, there's not many greater privileges than to have someone pray. And ultimately, God is in, in control of all things, and so uh, He is in control of the healing that takes place. And so I just, I thank you for your prayers. They were precious and uh, um, just really appreciated. So let me uh, open in prayer and then we'll uh, get started with repentance. Father, thank you for the opportunity again to be here with men who are serious about shepherding their homes, shepherding their hearts. And we know of no better way than to do that than through your word. And so we come to you because we, we know that your word is truth. It is the ultimate in all wisdom. And it is something that we want to uh, engage in and be uh, filtered into our hearts. And so we thank you for this time. I thank you for these men who want to walk in a manner that is worthy of their Savior. So we praise you, Father, in your name. Amen. Well, it is, uh, uh, I see a lot of repeat customers out there. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, a lot of what you hear today is uh, you've heard before, but... Uh, um, I know for some of you, it's probably build number four, maybe build number six, maybe even build number 10. So, uh, but uh, anyway. So a while back, <clears throat> I read a story about uh, a man named Tim Zulker. Tim uh, talked about a time when some of his wife's relatives came from Arizona to his state to visit. Here are, his, here are Tim's words. A few summers ago, my wife's cousin and his family came from Arizona to visit. We had a blast together, driving them all over and acting like tourists in our home state. But because I was distracted by talking with them and because we were going to touristy places I hadn't been to, I kept missing a turn, and so I'd end up doing a U-turn. Well, this happened enough over the three or four days that their kids named the U-turn a Tim. And as in, whoa, we're pulling a Tim again. Well, gentlemen, that's biblical repentance. It's a U-turn, turning away from your sin. So repentance, it means a, a changing of your mind about sin, uh, about ourselves, and toward God. We want to keep His holiness in mind because it is for our good and not for our harm. So as a believer in Christ, you are a repenter. Your life as a Christian began as a repenter. And repentance will continue with you until you come face to face with your Savior. 
However, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that repentance uh, doesn't come easy. Sometimes it can be very difficult to get to the spot where you want to be. So we're often discouraged by the annoyance of sin in our life and often confused when sin that we thought we had defeated keeps creeping back into our lives. And the Bible promises victory over sin, but how can we be sure that we're practicing true repentance? Well, first, we can identify some of the common characteristics that accompany repentance, but in it, as in and of themselves, do not prove the presence of true repentance. So, I want to repeat that. These characteristics may accompany repentance, but not prove the presence of genuine or true repentance. These characteristics, along with the biblical definition of repentance, were derived from uh, some work that Brian Arnold did at Grace Emmanuel Church, Grace Emmanuel Bible Church in Jupiter. So the first one is recognition of your sin. You acknowledge your sin, but you continue in it. Second, you have sorrow over your sin. Well, Judas had great sorrow over his sin, but it did not lead to his repentance. Thirdly, you feel the weight of a guilty conscience. Well, Judas again was greatly grieved over his sin. He returned the silver that he was paid for betraying Christ, but then he went out and hung himself. Seeking forgiveness. Number four is seeking forgiveness for your sin. You seek the forgiveness from those you have sinned against. However, you have made no effort or commitment to discontinue that sin. And number five, you tell yourself and others that you will not continue in this sin, but make no plan to stop. Clint Clint Archer says, it takes planning, decisiveness, sacrifice, and accountability to exercise true repentance. Again, planning, decisiveness, sacrifice, and accountability. So what is a biblical definition of true repentance? Not not the definition, but a definition. So I'll, I'll, read, uh, I'll read through these twice. So it is the abandonment, abandonment of all self-righteousness, all self-deception, and all self-reliance on your ability to overcome sin on your own. It's the abandonment of all self-righteousness, all self-deception, and all self-reliance on your ability to overcome sin. And secondly, it is the humbling of yourself to accept the biblical indictment 
of your sin and accept the biblical responsibility for your sin and to accept the need for a biblical pathway to victory over your sin. So to accept the charges against you, the biblical indictment of your sin, to accept the biblical responsibility that you are a sinner and it's your sin, and to accept the need to establish a biblical pathway to victory over your sin. So there are, uh, you, you did pick up two handouts that uh, uh, this morning, along with the notes and the homework. One is The Unrepentant Repenter by Jim Eliff. Uh, this will help you further define what repentance does and does not look like. And then the put off, put on list, which uh, this is to help you be more specific in defining the sin that you are confessing and repenting of. And then uh, on the other side, it is gives you scripture to help you put on the righteousness of Christ. So it's, it's um, again, to define your sin more clearly, a biblical, a biblical definition is much more helpful in defining uh, what your sin is. So sin is serious, and we need the right perspective on it. As Dave Harvey says, without a robust perspective on sin, the very notion of what it means to know God is profoundly weakened. We must have a proper perspective of sin and full disclosure of sin if we want victory over sin. So let's answer the question, why do we fight sin? Well, I have three reasons, but they're not good ones. It might be because I hate the consequences. It could be because I'm ashamed and disgraced by my sin. And it could be simply I want to experience the thrill of victory over conquering it. Again, these are inadequate reasons for fighting sin. Realizing that all sin is sin against God helps us fight for the right reasons. Because we know it hurts God. And the last thing, and that's the last thing we want to do. Jerry Bridges explains that our problem is that our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. We are more concerned about our own victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sins grieve the heart of God. Thomas Watson wrote, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Another author states, if we think sin is merely a horizontal problem, we may begin to believe that our sin is small and our virtue, uh, our virtue is sizable. Realizing the vertical nature of sin disabuses us or disillusions us of the notion because it reveals to us that the catastrophic seriousness of sin, the more bitter our sin becomes to us, the more sweet will be the gospel. So let's look at a uh, let's look at the theology of repentance. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, and 
its use in the New Testament always means a change in purpose and specifically a turning from sin. One author writes, true repentance never exists except in conjunction with faith. While on the other hand, wherever there is true faith, there is also real repentance. The two cannot be separated. So in a sense, it is putting uh, away our old life and turning to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. In MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus, repentance he says repentance begins with the recognition of sin. In other words, we understand that all our sin is offensive to God and we are personally responsible for our own guilt. He goes on to say, genuine repentance often accompanies an overwhelming sense of sorrow. And we're going to look at this sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7.10 in just a minute. He also says that genuine repentance involves a change of direction, a transformation of the will. It is far more than just a change of mind. It constitutes a willingness, a determination to abandon stubborn disobedience and to surrender to the will of Christ. His, his uh, final point was the repentance takes the place at, takes place at conversion, begins a progressive life, lifelong process of confession. And he uses 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This active, continuous attitude of repentance produces the poverty of the Spirit the mourning and meekness Jesus spoke of in the Beatitudes mentioned in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 6. This is a mark of a true believer. Paul Tontius says, Biblical or genuine repentance is an important discipline of the Christian life, but it can only be properly understood within the larger work of sanctification. God's goal is is to remake us into the image of Christ. In Christ, we died to sin and were made alive unto God and received the righteousness of Christ as a gift of grace. So using all of these quotes and references, these are godly men who are referencing the seriousness of sin. However, the outworking of our new position in Christ requires an ongoing work of putting off sin and putting on practical righteousness. In John 17, Jesus prays that we will be sanctified by the truth of God's word. So, as you practice your spiritual disciplines, reading God's word, memorizing, meditating on God's word, and other disciplines, the Holy Spirit uses scripture to reveal our heart to us and convict us in the areas of our life, lives that need to change. And we must repent. In fact, we will desire to repent. We need to change our mind about our sin and change the direction of our walk. This, that's essentially what repentance is. It's a 180 degree turn in the other direction. It's a U-turn. So how do you respond to the knowledge of sin in your life? 
Are you sensitive to the sin that you know is there? What does confession and repentance look like? Husbands, what would your wife say about your confession and repentance of sin? What would they say about the leadership in your home? And for some of you, what about your parenting? For those that are not married, what would your family say that your repentance, confession of sin and repentance looks like? So it's what my point is, is it's not so much what you think of this, but what do the people who are closest to you think that it looks like? So as Christians, we may all think we have a good understanding of what biblical repentance should look like. We are not only to examine ourselves, but also others who claim repentance. And we live around unrepentant sin every day, and we must be able to identify that our walk, that in our walk, and look to others to see that true repentance, what true repentance should look like. So in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11, it describes the detail of the repentance of the Corinthians after they discredited Paul's teaching and assaulted his character. And that's where we're going to spend some time today, is in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 through 11. So as you turn there, let me set the stage for everything that's going on at this time. In Paul's first visit to Corinth, he stayed there for 18 months, which was a part of his second missionary journey. This is described in Acts 18 and occurred in A.D. 51. After leaving Corinth, Paul received reports of immorality in the Corinthian church. He wrote a letter to the church to address this sin. However, the letter was lost. And this is referenced in 1 Corinthians 5, Verse 9, he says, I wrote you in my letter. He received further reports of divisions in the church and received the letter from the Corinthians with questions about his teaching while in Corinth. Paul responded from Ephesus with his second letter, which is the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul learned of further difficulties in Corinth due to self-appointed false apostles, which he describes in 2 Corinthians verse 11, or chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Paul traveled to Corinth from Ephesus for a painful visit and confronted the false teachers. The Corinthians did not stand with Paul before the false teachers. Paul was grieved by the lack of support from the Corinthians. So Paul wrote his third letter, known as the severe letter, which was lost, like the first one, delivered by Titus. It was delivered by, by Titus that caused sorrow for the Corinthians. And now Paul was anxious, anxious for news, of how the Corinthians responded to his severe letter. And finally, Titus met Paul with the news that the majority of the Corinthians had repented of their rebellion against Paul. Paul was comforted by Titus's report 
and proceeded to write his fourth letter, which is the book of 2 Corinthians. So, if you are, um, if you have your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll read verses 5 through 13. For even when we came to into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within, but God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not, you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the, the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. So the Corinthians had abandoned their pastor and their apostle, and when he confronted the... Uh, when he confronted the false teachers before them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, Paul says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. MacArthur says this about Paul. He says, he was a soul watcher, so serious and so devoted that he would literally expend himself and even give his life to protect their souls. He understood his duty. He understood the nature of it. He understood who he represented as under an under-shepherd of Christ. But unfortunately, the Corinthians didn't. And so they had rebelled against Paul, defected from him, joined in a series of accusations against, made against him by the false apostles. When Paul wrote the third letter, delivered by Titus, confronting them for abandoning him, there was not yet at any time, any evidence of repentance. And it wasn't until Paul returned that Paul learned the effect of his words of that third letter. It caused them sorrow. There were attitudes that Titus could discernibly see and measure in them that indicated they were truly repentant. The relational strife was apparently on the mend. So, in these passages, there are eight marks that, of what their solid repentance looked like. 
and these are not distant generalities but up close details. So these are the eight marks of repentance that I want you to look at closely and should be a part of uh, your repentance process. So the first mark is sorrow. It's in verses 9 and 10. So let's first compare godly sorrow with worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a grief about sin vertically toward God. It is a knowledge of your sin against a holy God. Godly sorrow is brokenness that causes us to mourn and weep over our sin, which in turn produces a fruit of repentance. Paul describes the right thinking about his sorrow over sin in 1 Timothy 1.15. It says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. In contrast, there is worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is a grief in a horizontal manner. You are grieved only over your circumstances, consequences, or feeling of guilt. Worldly worldly sorrow is only shallow repentance and is very short-lived. Biblical repentance requires a sorrow that is according to the will of God Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So the word sorrow is mentioned eight times in verses 8 through 11, and it tells me that this is more than just a mark. It is a prerequisite in your repentance. Where do we see godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow in the scriptures? Godly sorrow does not act like guilt. Guilt is not godly sorrow. Many of us get these two mixed up. Feeling guilty is being aware of your guilt, and we know that something is wrong when we feel guilty. Not that there's anything wrong with feeling guilty, but understand this. You can feel guilt to the point of sorrow, but not have godly sorrow. And Judas is the example. He was sorrowful. He did not truly repent. His guilt caused him to run from Jesus and commit suicide. Peter, on the other hand, is a great example of what repentance should look like. If we look at verses uh, in, uh, you don't have to go there, uh, Luke 22, six, verses 61 and 62, the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter had godly sorrow. And how do we know that it just wasn't guilt? It's because his life was marked by one where he stood by his Savior. Verse 11 says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, 
What avenging of wrong in everything you did demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Note the way Paul begins in verse 11. For behold, this is an exclamatory and exhilarating phrase. It is a statement that says, wow, you're making it very clear of what you're feeling. Paul is exhilarated by what he sees and what he heard Titus. What he heard as Titus brought him the report from the Corinthians. Titus is bringing an eyewitness account. It appears to Paul that the repentance had real substance. It was practical. It was visible. Had a, and it had observable effects. These are the things to look for in repentance. From sorrow, we go to the second mark of godly repentance, which is earnestness. Verse 11, For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. Earnestness is a persistent striving to correct a pattern of sin. MacArthur says where there is true repentance, there will be a manifest earnestness produced. So what, what do we, how do we define earnestness? Well, it's a word for eagerness. And what it means is eagerness toward righteousness, toward purity. It ends the indifference towards sin, the indifference towards iniquity, the complacency about evil and deception that led the person into that in the first place. It produces a strong desire to do the right thing, to make things right, to make restitution, to correct, to restore the broken relationship. There will be a passion. There will be action or a movement to make it right. An eagerness, a sprinting from sin toward holiness sprinting toward your Savior. The Corinthians were once unconcerned to defend Paul, and they believed the lies about him. They were inactive, not eager to defend Paul. But now, they were actively eager toward him. They are genuinely repentant, earnest to resolve their offense, earnest to make it right. Whatever they Whatever had them hesitant toward Paul was now gone. They were eager to move in the direction of holiness. Genuine repentance doesn't have to push or command the individual to do what is right. They are willingly and aggressively moving toward righteousness no matter what the consequences. So we see that earnestness reveals your repentance. So from sorrow and earnestness, we move to the third mark, and that is vindication. What vindication of yourselves? Again, notice the exclamatory word, what? What vindication of yourselves? This word seems to take the meaning of the statement <clears throat> to an elevated level. What vindication of yourselves? And what does vindication mean? It means to clear your name. You want to remove the reputation that you have for that sin. 
It is a strong desire to remove yourself from the sinful pattern and to restore with all whom you have sinned against. You seek to restore trust and confidence. You want to do what is right. They desired to clear themselves of the guilt of their lack of defense of Paul, their defection. They wanted to remove the stigma of their guilt and blame. Like a son who is eager to clear himself before his dad, not by lying, defending, or denying what he did, but by going humbly through confession of his sin and acknowledging their wrongdoing. That's what repentance looks like. The only way to vindicate yourself when you are guilty is through a humble acknowledgement of your guilt and demonstrating that you now are moving in an opposite direction. Vindication reveals repentance. So moving on to fourth, indignation. What indignation? Indignation is anger or outrage over the decision to sin. It is anger with yourself and anger over the shame that you brought on to your Lord and Savior. Outrage is a strong word. And the Corinthians were outraged over their own sin because Paul, in coming to his defense, because outrage over their own sin against Paul in not coming to his defense. They now hate what they once loved and practiced, which was hanging Paul out to dry, despising what they had done. Repentance evidences a radical change of mind towards sin. Where there once was love for sin, there is now outrage over sin. This is about as radical a change as you can undergo. So indignation reveals repentance. From sorrow and earnestness, vindication and then indignation, we now turn to the fifth uh, godly mark of godly sorrow, fear. Fear. For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What fear. Fear is a healthy reverence for the one who is most offended by your sin. Let's start with the fear of God. A worshipful fear of God, it arises out of a sense of his majestic holiness and the purity of his selfless love for you. He is so holy that you fear wronging him. He is so loving that you fear betraying his love for you. You are sobered into holiness. Where you had once been casual and unconcerned in your sin, where you had no sight of God as you looked on your sin with the light, suddenly you become aware of God and his character. You see the grotesque evil you are trifling with. It was always this way, but scales 
have fallen from your eyes and now you see God and your sin as you should. Job said in Job 42.5, I have heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. This is a fear that is a worshipful fear, and it does not run from God, but to God. It is a fear that does not make you run away from your offended brother, but to your offended brother to reconcile and restore with them. Fear reveals repentance. Another quote from MacArthur, there will be a longing, driving eagerness to make the relationship right. There will be a strong desire to clear one's name and remove the stigma that sin has brought. There will be hatred, outrage, indignation over iniquity in one's own life and there will be a longing to reverence God and fear God and exalt God and worship God appropriately. A new sense of holy fear. Our sixth mark of godly repentance is longing. What longing? There we have the word what again. Longing is a strong desire to restore a relationship that has been harmed because of sin. The Corinthians were now positively drawn toward Paul. They desired Paul. They desired reconciling with him. They yearned to see him with a strong, positive affection. They no longer wanted distance between them. They were no longer withholding themselves from him. They were longing for him. Longing reveals repentance. But there is even more than than this longing. Paul experienced more than them longing for him. There was a zeal. And this is number seven. Zeal is a passion motivated by both love and hate. You love something so much that you hate anything that brings harm to it. You have a zeal for the word of God and hate anything that blasphemes God's truth. Zeal goes beyond longing. The Corinthians were stirred up into an even greater fervor for Paul. They had an intense desire to give evidence of their repentance. They were zealous to comply with anything more that could be done to put their relationship with Paul on more solid ground. So they not just turn from their sin, they are not just turned toward Paul, they now have a longing to be with Paul. But they are zealous for Paul and their relationship with him, and they are zealous to remove every obstacle between them and Paul. Zeal. Reviews, reveals repentance. And the last one, number eight, what avenging of wrong. When repentance is, is real, it seeks justice for the avenging of wrongs. Justice is applying a consequence that avenges the wrong and promotes holiness of life. So how do we know when someone is genuinely repentant? This is how. 
when they're done defending themselves, done trying to protect themselves, done pitying themselves, but rather are avenging the wrong they have done. They are ready for justice, ready to bring justice down even though it's going to fall directly on their heads. They are ready to accept the consequence of their sin. Avenging of wrong reveals repentance. So what about the last statement in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 7? In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. The Greek word for innocent means pure or holy. MacArthur says they demonstrated the integrity of their repentance by their purity. Repentance involves admitting to specific sins and requesting forgiveness from those whom you have sinned against. I'd also like to share with you five specific characteristics of a repenter. And if you'd like this list, uh, you can let me know. I can send it to you or um, I can get it to you in some way. Number one, a repenter renews his mind with truth from Scripture consistently. He is aware that the battle against temptation is first waged in the mind and that the process of repentance begins there as well. Number two, a repenter responds to God immediately. At the first sign of conviction, he agrees with God about his sin, he turns away from it, and turns toward the Lord. Number three, a repenter obeys God completely. His repentance is thorough, and he does not cast a longing look back at his sin. He forsakes the temporary pleasure of sin for the abiding joy of God's blessing. A repenter, number four, a repenter follows God personally. He does not base his commitment to God on what others are doing. He says, though no one joins me, I still will follow. It expresses the attitude of his heart in personally following God. And number five, a repenter accepts God's discipline faithfully, realizing that sin has consequences. He accepts the Lord's discipline as an act of love and as a reminder when he next faces temptation. So a repenter renews his mind. He responds to God. He obeys God. He follows God personally and accepts God's discipline and does not perceive himself as a victim. And let me add, we are not talking about perfection. We're talking about a direction. You will never achieve perfection until you meet your Savior. The good news about repentance is that when true repentance comes, you're going to know it. Why? Because you will have a sorrowful heart that is also joyful to not be running 
any longer in the sinful direction that you had been on, you will have us you will have a sorrow that won't regret turning from your sin. You won't leave your feel you it, that won't leave you feeling like you've lost anything, but only that you have gained. It is a sorrow that gives you evidence of the salvation that you've been enjoying. It is a sorrow that aligns you with God's will. With godly sorrow, you be humbled and you will be focused on your Savior, on his name only, and how he suffered and died in your place, was buried and raised from the dead so that you might walk in newness of life now and for all eternity. John Newton knew himself as one of the greatest sinners, but after coming to God, he composed these words. He says, How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. I want to close this morning with an excerpt from Scott Maxwell's prayer that was provided uh, to BUILD and Wellspring participants. I know that when I went through BUILD and and, uh, we received a copy of this prayer, but it is Scott addressing uh, the seriousness of sin and and the sin that, uh, um, that he is very concerned and cautioned of. And I'll read you Scott's words. I have your word open before me because I need to learn more of the nature of my sin and the fallenness before you so that I might better understand what danger I truly was in and what danger still lurk within me through my indwelling sin. I need to see both the sin that provoked your righteous wrath towards your son and your grace that moved you to act as Savior toward me in Jesus. If I do not fight to have Scripture's view of my sin today, I will easily be duped by sin's deception and become unaware of or indifferent to sin's nearness to me. And then... I then will be vulnerable to sin's entanglements. Sin, at that point, can then become familiar, even tolerable to me. Finally, sin can then become a delight to me. Before I know it, I will be in a position of weakness with sin. I will be in a fight of my life to be free from its entanglements and may even no longer desire to be free of its entanglements. If I do nothing today concerning the view of my sin, my view of sin will only grow dangerously cloudy. Let's pray. Father, again, I thank you for your word and how it reminds us of who we should be, who we need to be in order to be conform to the image of your Son. And Father, we are so grateful, so grateful to be saved, the privilege, the gift of grace 
is unmatchable. Uh, it is uh, just so. Uh, it is grace. There's there's just nothing to attach to it. And so, Father, we are grateful for who you are, for revealing to us who we are, and we we just want to be obedient to you as we walk through repentance, confession. We want to be restored to you and to those we've sinned against. So we thank you for this time. I thank you for the hearts of these men who want to lead their families well. And a part of that is to be an example, to be an example of addressing sin and addressing it biblically. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.